to experience something new. Because I have never preached a psalm before, and therefore you have never heard me preach one. So we'll see how this goes, all right? And two, I, wanted, I want to just be um, upfront with you. I named this sermon and did a terrible job of it, all right? Because I named it uh, Be Ints. And if you're normal people, you don't know what that is. But if you have ever read the book or seen uh, the Lord of the Rings movies, think of the character Treebeard. Treebeard is an int. He's like a big walking, talking tree. If you're still like, I, I don't know what that is, this is why I'm confessing to you I did a bad job. All right? But they're on the same, we're on the same page as much as we can be, and we're going to push forward from here. Here we go. So Psalm 1 is where we're going to be at this morning. Matt, do you know what um, is almost invaluable in a song or a book or a movie or maybe even a sermon? It's a good introduction. Like, think about, think about classic introductions. Think about the introduction to the first Star Wars movie. How does it begin? It's this dark screen, right, with the yellow words rolling up from the bottom. And it's like kind of preparing you for all the action that is going to unfold. Like, it seems so simple, but how many times have you seen someone now borrow that same idea of the dark screen with the yellow words, right? A good intro is important in a book. I remember the first book study I ever did with some of the guys in this room. The intro was the best part. We nerded out about the intro more than anything else. We talked about it longer than any other chapter. We referred back to it over and over again. Years later, one of the guys that I was having a conversation with, he used language that we learned in that introduction. It got us excited and ready for everything was about to follow. Psalm 1 can kind of be seen like an introduction to the rest of the book. It's going, to, it's going to set out the basic principles that follow in all the rest of the Psalms. Whenever I was in elementary school, I had to memorize this Psalm. And it's one of the very few that I can still, that I can still quote to this day. And you know, that would actually be the intent of the author. That we would memorize it. And that it would teach us and remind us. That it would teach us the truths that there are benefits to the person who walks the righteous path that God has laid out for us. And to also remind us and teach us that there is futility in the lives of the ungodly or what this psalm would call the wicked. So simply put, Psalm 1 is going to contrast the way of the righteous versus the way of the wicked. And throughout, you'll see, like, I, I'll kind of interchange wicked and ungodly because the way that I've learned it is ungodly, and so you're just going to have to bear with me, all right? But as we look at this psalm, here's the three things that I'd like us to kind of consider. Consider what it says. This psalm tells us what to avoid, what to seek, and it ends by answering this question, what difference does it ultimately make? So that's kind of the direction we're going. Let's, let's read our text now. Psalm 1, beginning in verse 1, it says, Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Church, these are the words of God from the mouth of God that he has given to us because he loves us. 
and they are true. So, do you ever consider how many things in life we're told to avoid? Like, you are told, you were told by some that you should avoid T-bone steaks of all steaks because there's such a high fat content. That's stupid, but that's what they say. Um, you're told that you should avoid computer screens because they're like really bad for your eyes. You should avoid fast food. You should avoid electric cars. You should avoid diesel trucks and tobacco and rap music and high heel shoes and sand traps and adjustable rate mortgages and drama and social media and people who cause conflict and an endless list of other things, right? And depending on who you ask, that list is going to be very different. And what one person might say you should avoid, one person might say you should actually gravitate towards. But for all of us, there are things that we are actively seeking to avoid, right? Now, usually we do so because we know they're bad for us. Now, not always, right? Like, I avoid exercise, but, you know, this is a general thing. Generally, we avoid things because we know that they're bad for us. You know, in Psalm 1, God is actually telling us what to avoid. More specifically, God is actually giving us categories of people to avoid. But he not only tells us who or what to avoid, but also why. Verse 1, he says, Blessed is the man that doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, doesn't stand in the way of sinners, and doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers. So we have these three categories. The first of which, he says, avoid the counsel of the wicked or the ungodly. And you know, at face value, most of us would hear this and be like, yes, thank you, that is a simple truth. We should avoid the counsel of wicked people. But we don't always, do we? Because so often, that counsel, the counsel of ungodly people is actually what we find ourselves kind of drawn towards, right? Because maybe that message makes us feel good. Maybe it seems like it would be an easier way of life or whatever other reason there might be. You know, though we may not actively be seeking out the counsel of wicked people, they often do influence us, right? Like just by nature of living in the world. Like, the music we listen to, and I don't care if you're listening to Christian music or whatever genre else you might choose, they're all seeking to counsel you. They're seeking to tell you this is what is right and true, and this is what you're to do in light of that. The TV we watch does that. The people you follow on social media do that. The articles you read, the newscasts you consume, everything in life, you know what it's doing? It's seeking to tell you, hey, this is what's true, and this is what you should do in light of that. Now look, are there times when unbelievers say things that are reflective of the truth that God has revealed in general revelation? Yeah, man, absolutely there is. And are there times when we should actually seek the advice of those outside the church? Sure. Because God in his grace has blessed certain people with wisdom that we might need. But as believers, man, we are, not to, we are not to just take the counsel of those outside of the church. Because we have been given this great gift of the body of Christ. That we can take that advice and we can take it back to the community of believers. Let them be our sounding board. Let them be our counsel. The blessed person is the one who takes wise, Christ-centered counsel. And considers first and foremost in all things what God has said to be true. And you know, in some things God has said, he's very specific. Like, in this situation, do this. You know, there's a lot of things the Bible actually never talks about. Like, I told them the kids a couple weeks ago, I'm like, you know what the Bible never talks about? 
dating. Like it's not an example, like a one-for-one guidebook of what to do. You know, the Bible has given us good general principles to live by that we can take and apply to these situations that are less specific. And maybe here more than anywhere else, this is where we see, man, we need the body of believers. We need other people's wisdom. Like, hey, this general principle that God has given, how do I take that and apply it to my very specific situation? We are to avoid the counsel of the wicked. And you know, as you seek to do that, we need to be very aware that wicked people aren't the ones doing the most heinous acts. The wicked person is the one who is not adhering to God's law. Though they may um, follow the rules a lot better than you do. Second category says we do avoid sinners. Now look, because you are good Bible-believing Calvinistic people, you're saying, good, avoid everyone. But the, here, the psalmist is actually using this word in a very specific way. He is just meaning simply those who are not believers. And it tells us not to stand in their way. You know what this is speaking to? This is speaking to the company you keep. It's asking the question, hey, who do you spend your time with? Who do you call your best friends? When you have some free time, who are you calling to enjoy that time with? It's asking the question, are you wise about the company that you keep? Because the Bible shows us over and over again, you are going to become like those that you spend the most time with. There are lots of examples of this in Scripture, but one that came to my mind is found in Genesis 38. It's a dude named Judah. Judah is one of Jacob's sons, and it says that Judah leaves his father's house. Now look, he's a grown man, right? He's not some runaway child, but he decides that he is going to leave his father's house. Meaning he, for him, that means he's going to leave the community of God's people. And he goes off and marries a Canaanite woman, which God said, hey, don't do that. And you know what happened? They started a family. They lived among those people. And over the years, it shows that he became more and more and more like the pagan people that he lived around. And it led to misery in his life and misery and destruction in the lives of his family. Y'all, there's no denying the company we keep will influence us. And God says, yeah, so blessed are you who keep wise, godly company and avoid being entangled with those that are not living lives in submission to God. It's always, though, we need to remind her, are we to associate with unbelievers? Yes. The Bible also says, don't go live in a village by yourself. Because we are to seek to love and befriend and serve and evangelize the lost. But our company, our people, those who we spend the most time with, those that are giving us counsel, those that are forming and shaping and influencing us the most, man, those are to be the people of God. Third category. Verse 1 ends by saying, not sit in the seat of scoffers. I hope none of you all use that word. Like, it's old-fashioned, and most people don't know what you mean. Like, whenever you title your sermon something that nobody knows what they mean. Right? This is the same thing. So here's what a scoffer is. A scoffer is a person who mocks or makes fun of something or someone, usually because of their, um, their moral beliefs or their religious beliefs. God says, avoid them. Here's what Charles Spurgeon 
had to say about this verse. He says, this person, the blessed person, is one who finds no rest in atheist scoffing. He says, let others make a mock of sin, eternity, heaven, hell, and the eternal God. This man, the blessed man, has too much sense of God's presence to endure to hear his name blasphemed. The scoffer's seat may be very lofty, but it's very near the gate of hell. We know Christianity is a punchline for many, and the idea of submitting to a God of any kind actually seems foolish to most people. But the blessed person is one who does not sit idly by while the living God is mocked by others. As I think about, like, what is mocking like? What is the mocking of God like? You know, I don't think it's as blatant as what we normally think. Like, so often, God's name's not even invoked whenever he is mocked. You know what I think is mocked more often? The things that God says to be important. His values. The way of life that he has said, this is where joy and peace in life are found. And people are like, yeah, it's freaking stupid. But you know, Christian, there's a blessing for standing up for the truth of what God has declared to be right and good. So the blessed person is mindful of the counsel that he takes, the company he keeps, and the commentary that he is hearing about God. The blessed and wise person avoids what God says to avoid. Christian, does this describe you? Or do you think that maybe you need to reevaluate these things? Maybe you need to reevaluate the company that you keep, those that are most influencing and shaping you. Do you need to reevaluate the counsel you're taking? Maybe not even directly from a person you meet face to face, but from the things you consume. And maybe reevaluate the commentary that you're hearing about God. Man, we should always be mindful of these things, right? But sometimes we need to consciously just take a step back. Because so often, you know what happens? We drift. And drifting happens slowly, and most of the time you don't even know. But sometimes that conscious step back to reevaluate your life makes you realize, like, oh, I need a course correction. I need a realigning with God's, the things that God has said to be right and good. So, This is the negative side, right? This is the don't do side. This is the, oh my gosh, this is terrible side. That's how I would hear it. I'm broken. So on the other side, though, of, hey, don't do this. Hey, avoid this. There is a, hey, seek after this. If we're going away from something, we should be running to something. And the psalm also tells us what we're to be seeking. When we seek something out, we seek the best, right? Or like the best available to us. Like when you buy a car, you don't buy the worst one you could find. You buy the best you can afford. Whenever you seek out friends, you don't look for the people. It's like, man, I bet they will really screw me over. I should spend all of my time with them. No, what do we do? We look for people. It's like, I like them. I think they would be on my side. I think they would be good for me. I think they would be loyal to me. These are the people I want to spend my time with. You look for the best in your friends. You look for the best in a car, in a house, in a marriage, in dating, all, all the things, right? We look for the best. And here in verse 2, God is saying, hey, you, you looking for the best? Man, let me tell you what that is. Don't try to figure it out yourself. Let me tell you. It says in verse 2, the blessed person is the one who seeks out and delights in and meditates on the law of the Lord. Whenever we hear the word law here, we can thank Scripture. Like the psalmist, whenever he wrote this, you know what his whole Bible was? It was five books. 
And it's probably the books, at least a couple of them are probably the books that you skip over in your yearly reading plan, right? Because it's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. This was their whole Bible, right? And oftentimes in Scripture, when we read law, that's what it's referring to. But here, now that the, the canon of Scripture is closed, whenever we read law here, for this purpose, we can think the whole Bible. This is what our delight is to be in. But most of us don't hear law and think delight, do we? You know, it's important for us to notice the word associated with here. Your delight is in the law of the Lord. What if we changed this sentence just a little bit? What if we changed out one word and rearranged a little? What if we said it was being under the law? How much would that change it? Because there's a difference in being under the law and finding your delight in it. Because to be under the law means to be under its curse and condemnation. And when we hear law, and this is where our mind often goes, but this wasn't, this isn't the purpose of Scripture. This isn't the reason God gave us the law. It's not to be repressive. The law of God is to be freeing to his people. And this is why Christians can say there's delight in God's law, because we know that it brings freedom. The world would look at the law of God and be like, uh-uh, repressive. But everything in life for the Christian and in the world in general is actually screaming, that's not true. Think of it even, think about it with children, whether they're children of believers or not. You know what children actually want inherently? They want some rules. And we can line up every kid in here and they're like, you are wrong, sir. But they're wrong. Because you know what? Kids actually do want rules. Why? Because it makes them feel safe. I remember one time we told Elliot, Elliot, don't walk past the white line on the road. You know, huh? And so what does she do? She tight ropes and looks at us, right? Because she wants to know, like, okay, I know you said not past here, but what if I walk on here? Like, how far can I push, right? But you know, to her credit, she didn't cross the line. Because inherently she knew, on the other side of the line, my parents said, don't cross here because it's not safe. She's like, they've put this in place for my good. Children desire rules, even rules they may not understand because they know they're put in place because their parents love them and desire for them to be safe and to thrive. There are exceptions, but this is the general rule. And you know what? We as believers know the same is true for us. Our Heavenly Father has given us rules because He desires for us to be safe and thrive. And because the blessed person knows that is why we have the Word of God, the blessed person reads these words, meditates on these words, sings songs that are reflective of the truths found in Scripture. They use the words of Scripture as praise, as cries of distress. They go to them when their own words fall short or when their own words don't come at all. You know, this is actually what we're seeking to teach every Sunday in our liturgy. We use the words of Scripture in our liturgy to teach, like, hey, man, you can use these for a lot of things. You can use these in your prayers. You can use these as praise to God. I mean, is it, do you think it's weird to be thinking about and talking about the Bible all the time? Moses in the Old Testament, he obviously didn't. And here's what he wrote. He said in, in Deuteronomy, in one of those books that most of us skip, he said, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. 
You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk about them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. You shall, they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on your doorposts of your house and on your gates. You know what's being communicated here? The Word of God is to be a normal thing for us to be talking about and absorbing in our daily lives. Does the idea of talking about Scripture all the time seem like overwhelming to you? Man, let me encourage you. We all have to start somewhere. Think about whenever you started maybe your first job and you came in and you're like, I don't think this place can be my normal place. I don't know if I can deal with these people. I don't know if I can do what's being asked of me. I don't know if I'll make it till the end of the day. And like you were overwhelmed. And a few months later, you come in running on two hours sleep and a five hour energy and like you're doing it because it's so routine. It's just doing it in your sleep. Everybody starts somewhere. The more you absorb the scriptures, the more you make it a normal part of your day, and the more routine and the more normal feeling it gets. Because look, man, it, it can feel awkward. Let's be real. It can feel awkward in the beginning. But you know, whether you've been a Christian for decades or you came to faith yesterday, let me remind you of this truth. We are not meditating on the Word of God because we are so righteous. We are doing it in order that we might become more righteous. We don't meditate and talk about God's word because we're at the top of the perfect pyramid, right? We are doing it so we might become more like Jesus. As we come to the scriptures, we need to have a right view of it, though. This has been big for me. It's every morning as I sit down and read, I've been asking God this. God, make me see my time in your word not as transactional, but instead as transformational. And here's the difference in the two. Transactional looks something like this. All right, spent 20 minutes, woke up 20 minutes early today, spent 20 minutes in my Bible, prayed a little bit, and therefore I'm going to have an awesome day, and whenever something terrible happens, what I read is automatically going to come to mind. I'm going to know how to apply it in that situation, and everything's going to go great. It's transactional. But instead, our view of absorbing Scripture is to be that it is transformational. Our view needs to be that over time we immerse ourselves in it over and over again so that over time the Spirit will work these words and these truths deep down in the core of who we are, that it will be changing us from the inside out, affecting the way that we think and the way we act and the way that we speak. It's not your practice to be in the Word. You may really legit wonder, like, is the juice worth the squeeze? Is it worth my 20 minutes or whatever to get up? I can say for me, it has been. This slowly over time, God has been using this and changing me. Slowly. And the psalm actually goes on to tell us that there is benefit. Look at verse 3. What does it say? As you meditate on, as you absorb God's word, it says you will be like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. You know, trees that have their roots by water, they are vital, they are stable, they are flourishing. Think of God's word as water. It makes us vital, it makes us stable, and it lets us flourish. Think about the root structure of a tree. Like, you don't see it, right? You don't comprehend how vast and strong and how far down it goes. Did you know if you ever see a really bad drought and that tree standing tall on the other side of it? Like, man. It's getting its nutrients from somewhere. Or like, what about crazy storms? When it rips apart everything around it and that tree still stands strong. 
you realize then how strong that root structure is. And don't you want that to be you? Don't you want to have a vitality and a stability about you? Doesn't everyone want to have confidence when the storms of life come in, you will be able to stand strong? We all want vitality and stability, and we all want to flourish. Think about, think about a tree, all right? I don't know what it looks like, branches and wood and stuff. Think about a tree, specifically a fruit tree. Whenever it puts on, who does that, who does that fruit benefit? The tree's not eating itself. It's benefiting others. As you are rooted in God's truth, you will flourish. You will produce the fruits. The Spirit will produce these in you, and they will bless others. Y'all, Christianity is not a me and my Jesus kind of thing. Christianity is a, hey, go and make disciples. Be a blessing to others thing. And as we, as the blessed person seeks out the scriptures, as they let them be their roots, they will bless others with the fruit the Spirit produces in them. Will there be blessings for them? Absolutely. But man, one of the greatest blessings you get to experience is to see others be blessed by you as God is working in you. In contrast to the blessed person who is vital and stable and flourishing, God tells us what the wicked are like. He says that they're like chaff, which if you're a normal American, means that you don't know what that means. But chaff is like the thin little coating around a seed. It's seemingly weightless and light, and it's easily carried away by the smallest wind. God says, this is what the, chaff, what the wicked are like. They are lifeless, they are frail, and they are sterile. Because they have no root, they are easily blown about, the Bible would say, by every wind of doctrine. The practical difference between the blessed and the wicked person is their attitude towards the law of God. Is it life-giving and delightful, or is it a repressive curse? How do you see it? You think about the law of God. Is it a blessing to you? Is it life-giving? Or is it the thing that is repressive and condemning? Depending on how you see the law of God, it might be an indicator as to which camp you are in. So, we are told, avoid this, seek this. And as we close, here's what we're going to consider. We're going to consider the way the psalm answers this question. Dude, what difference does it ultimately make? So there are lots of things in life where we can be neutral, right? Like if you're married, you have had the conversation probably 14 times this week. Hey, what do you want for the next meal? And sometimes you can be neutral. Like, I don't care if it's the chicken or the beef. I really don't, as long as I don't have to make it. Right? Like sometimes you can be neutral. Many things in life we can be neutral. But you know, one thing you do not get to be neutral about is God. You're on one side or the other, and the Bible tells us that in this life and for all eternity, it's going to matter which side you are on. Verses 5 and 6, the way this psalm closes, it lays out this simple, simple and ultimate truth for us. That the ungodly, the wicked, the sinners, that they will not be able to stand in judgment. As God one day calls them to account for their thoughts, their words, and their deeds, they will have no ground on which to stand. They will not be able to stand, and therefore they will perish. What that means is that their ultimate, is, their ultimate end is destruction. That means for all eternity, the wicked actually will experience God. But only His wrath. The wicked for all eternity 
will experience the unharnessed wrath of God with none of his grace and mercy as a balm for their souls. But on the other hand, the righteous, the blessed ones, when that judgment comes, they will be able to stand before God, not in their own righteousness, not in their own rightness, not because of the things that they have done. They will be able to stand in the righteousness of Christ. And because they are hidden in Him, they will be accepted. They will not be bound for destruction and death, but for glorification and life eternal. In the new heavens and the new earth, where we, for all eternity, will be with God, experiencing Him with unveiled faces. If you're not a believer, my call to you is this. Then consider what the psalm says about who you are now and where that path is leading. And to hear the call that Christ invites you to submit to Him, to be found in His righteousness, to let Him take all of your sin and to give you all of His perfection and to be transformed by His power. If you are a Christian, my call to you is this. Man, daily immerse yourself in the Word of God. If you've got five minutes, spend five minutes. If you have a smartphone, because you're all smart people, turn on the app and let it read to you while you drive somewhere. I mean, like, let's use the technology God has blessed us with, right? Like, but in some way, man, immerse yourself in it. Because as you do, man, God will use it to bless you. He will make you like that tree that is planted by streams of water. And then you will experience vitality and stability and flourishing that can only come when you are rooted in Christ and being fed by his words. And let me encourage you, to, as you immerse yourself in the word, I want you to keep coming back to this image of the tree. And remember these things about it. Trees grow slow, man. They grow slowly over time. That they have to be nourished. And the amount of fruit they produce are proportionate to the water they get. If the word of God is like water, let me encourage you to drink it in, to be nourished by it. And on this long, lifelong course, man, stay the course and grow and see the fruit that God produces in you. Let me leave you with this thought. Let's think about, let's think about Jesus in light of this psalm. Because as we look at Jesus, we see that he didn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. He didn't stand in the way of sinners and he didn't sit in the seat of scoffers. But he instead delighted himself in the law of his Father, daily meditating on it and its goodness. And because the will of the Father was his delight, he took the wrath that was rightly due to you and I in order that we might have his righteousness and that you and I might be called blessed by the Father. Let's pray together. God, I love you. Thank you for uh, this time that you have given us to examine your word. I pray that you would, man, that you would give us minds and hearts that were willing, minds and hearts that are willing to be real about where we're at, to consider, um, man, where we maybe have drifted, the counsel that we are taking, consider who we are listening to, who is helping form us in the thoughts that we have about you pray that you would give us a desire to immerse ourselves in your word that you would make us as a church and as individuals like strong vital stable flourishing trees pray that you might bear fruit in us that we might bless others we thank you jesus that you did perfectly what we could not 
that you considered us before yourself, that you, man, that you took the call that the Father put on you. Pray that you would make us more like you. We thank you for these words. We thank you for this time. We pray that it might, even today, be, that you might be working in us today to form us and shape us by these words you have given us. We ask that you would do this for our good and most importantly for your glory. We ask it in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.